Well, let's return to John's prologue. We are greeted in John chapter 1 by three terms, wonderful terms, describing the incarnated Son of God. John chapter 1. Here Jesus is described as the Logos, or the Word, as the life, and as the light. Why did the Holy Spirit breathe out these three terms? To describe Jesus, the Creator. What do they tell us about Jesus, and what do they speak about the world all around us? The Logos, the life, and the light. John writes in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, it's Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Logos, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, in verse 3, the Logos is the agent of all of God's creative acts. Not a molecule, not a grain of sand, not a single star, and all those billions of galaxies was made independently of the Logos. The Logos, in verse 4, is also the source of life. Scientists have developed wonderful taxonomies of the myriad varieties of life that creep, crawl, slither, swim, fly, gallop, and bounce around our planet. Nevertheless, scientists believe they've only cataloged about 15% of the planet's species. Imagine that. The World Atlas estimates there are some 8.7 million different species on planet Earth. Scientists or entomologists have cataloged 350,000 types of beetles. Beetles! And there's likely many, many more. The number of animals on this planet is estimated to be 20 quintillion. That's 20 billion billion and that doesn't include plant life or microbial life. Did you know that scientists have never satisfactorily defined life? They've identified various components of life. They have described the inner workings of the cell or the circulatory system of birds in flight. They recognize life when they see it, but there is a mystery at the heart of life that really just defies definition. But we do know one thing for certain. Life begets life. In terms of observational science, there is no greater scientific law in biology than this. Life begets life. We know of no exceptions. So why should we find it surprising that the Bible views the source of all life as life. 
Verse 4, in him was life. Friends, that is a scientific view of origins. You have precisely three options. Everything came from nothing. Everything came from something lifeless. Or all life is sourced in life. If your view of origins is consistent with scientific law, life begets life. Your only valid option then is to begin with life. Friends, the whole living, breathing, moving, replicating ecosystem of our planet points to life as the source of life. In him was life. And that's all review. Now observe a third description of Jesus in verse 4. The life was the light of men. Jesus is the light. Light is actually a major theme of John's gospel. John writes of John the Baptist in verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Or John writes of Jesus in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Or in John chapter 9, the apostle will devote a whole chapter to a single miracle, the opening of the blind eyes. And that miracle is a dramatic illustration of John chapter 8, where Jesus, Jesus gives his famous discourse, I am the light of the world. Light, friends, is a universal symbol for understanding, for intelligence, or for wisdom. To live in darkness is to live in ignorance. So Jesus came into the world like a great beacon of light to illuminate our path. Now keep a finger here and just flip back to Matthew chapter 4 because Matthew also will describe Jesus as the light. Matthew describes Jesus' Galilean ministry in a really a remarkable way. Following his introduction to the person of Jesus, Matthew begins narrating the public ministry of Jesus in chapter 4. But he does so by quoting Isaiah's prophecy as having been fulfilled. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling or living in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. A dawning light out there on the horizon. That's how Isaiah and Matthew describe the commencement of Jesus' public ministry. Now, we probably do not appreciate the dawn the way most people did throughout all of human history. We get out of bed and we flip the light switch, and our room is just flooded with light. There's a big difference, friends, between the available light at 6 o'clock in the morning in the winter or 6 o'clock in the morning in the summer. But we hardly pay any attention. 
because we have a light switch. But when you actually have to wait for the dawn, 365 days out of the year, the breaking of light out there on the horizon really is a very powerful image. People quite literally just waited, waited for the dawn. When the sun's embers just fade into the western sky, you just felt the darkness. You felt the darkness until the sun went all the way around and came up in the eastern sky. Now keep that in mind. This is how Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee, like the dawn of the sun. And let's return now to John's Gospel. And as we do, let's just observe that the image of light is not unique to theology. And perhaps the most famous illustration in all the philosophy, Plato describes ignorance as people living in a dark cave. Let's picture, says Plato, some prisoners that are chained in such a way that they only see the back wall of the cave. And that back wall is illuminated by a fire between them and the mouth of the cave. And between the prisoners and the fire is a very low wall. And there are silent figures that move back and forth behind that low wall. And they carry these cut-out images of objects. And these cut-out images produce shadows on the back wall. Images of trees and cats and dogs and so forth. We look at these shadows as prisoners and we mistake them for reality. The prisoners represent, in Plato's mind, the majority of people who have ever lived on this planet. We live in the shadows. The philosopher, Plato says, is an escaped prisoner who comes to understand that he lives in a cave, looking at shadows. And having ascended out to the mouth of the cave, he achieves a clear understanding of truth once he walks out into the light. And Plato's point is that human beings, with the exception of very few, live in a shadow world. They assume that reality is only in the material objects around us. Knowledge consists only of material facts delivered to us by our senses. Plato would be no friend of modern atheistic science, not at all. He would condemn it utterly. In Plato's allegory, the escaped prisoner passes through four levels of understanding until he begins to understand the ultimate source of good itself. And the good is Plato's God. Now, when that liberated prisoner who makes his way out of the cave comes back into the cave, he has a nearly insurmountable problem. How does he explain to those prisoners that they're living in darkness? There's a glorious world outside the cave, but they don't understand it. They've never seen it. They don't even desire it. Well, very curiously, John says something rather similar in verse 10. He, the light, was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Or consider one of the passage in John chapter 3, 
and verse 19. You might want to turn there, actually. John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light has come into our dark cave of ignorance, but we love the darkness. Now, I don't know whether John read Plato or not. It's certainly conceivable, but really the parallels are quite profound. Jesus, of course, is not an escaped prisoner, but Jesus does indeed come into a world that's just full of darkness. And Jesus enters a world where people just languish in the prison house of sin. And yet those prisoners just really love the darkness. They resist the light. The Creator comes to them and they crucify Him. Now, let's make sure, though, that we achieve some real balance in our thinking. I think Plato's illustration is really quite intriguing. But let's achieve some balance. On the one hand, John tells us the darkness rejected the light. It's right there in chapter 3 and verse 19. People rejected the ministry of Jesus. The light indeed, the light indeed came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. That is true. But back in chapter 1, notice how also John describes the light as irresistible. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this really is true in the physical world, is it not? Night cannot resist the light. Darkness is no barrier to the penetration of light. You just flip on a flashlight during a dark night, and the night just will not resist. It can't. And it's also true spiritually. When Jesus, the Logos, the source of life, comes into the world and men see that light and when they embrace His gospel, the darkness just disappears. The darkness did not and cannot overcome the ministry of Jesus. And friends, this is true all over the world today. When oppression comes to Afghanistan or North Korea, the darkness will not overcome the light. You can be certain of that. It's never happened through all of human history. When the oppression comes, the light grows brighter in the darkness. So clearly then we have a tension, and I hope you're okay with that. The darkness does not overcome the light. However, don't take verse 5 so far that it cancels out verse 10 or John 3 and verse 19. People can, in fact, reject the light. The light is available. The light can indeed penetrate your dark heart if you will let it do so. The light can indeed expose your wicked ways. The light will condemn your incorrect thinking about God and His world and show you how to think correctly. Just go ahead and just step right out into the blazing light of the sun, and the darkness will be dispelled. However, if you go crawling back into your cave, back into the darkness and live in denial, then you are the person that John 3 and verse 19 speaks of. People love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So how would you know 
How would you know that indeed you really do love the light and not the darkness? How would you know that? Well, the New Testament offers numerous ways. But for now, would you just observe the link between life and light in verse 4? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You can draw an equal sign between life and light. Life is light. Embracing Jesus as the life is to embrace Jesus as the light. And of course, the life and the light are also the logos. Draw another equal sign. The word that spoke the universe into existence, that's the life, that's the light. And you know that you have truly embraced the light if you indeed embrace the life and the logos. So let me put this to you another way. Think about Genesis chapter 1. Because we hear echoes of Genesis 1 here in John chapter 1. In the beginning, God created all things by His voice. And God said, the Logos. In the beginning, God also created life. And in the beginning, God also created light. You got it all right there in the first chapter. It's all there in Genesis 1. So friend, do you really want to know if you have embraced the light? Or whether you're going to go crawling back into your cave of darkness? Well, just start right there with the Bible's first page. What do you do with it? What do you do with the first page? If you love the light, you will, you will embrace the truth from the beginning. You try to explain away Genesis 1, you might as well go crawling back into your dark cave and reject the light. Truly embracing this threefold foundation of the logos, the life, and the light is essential to understanding the gospel. And friends, it really is indeed essential to embracing everything that's still to come in John. That's why I'm really taking some time with this. We're going to pick up our pace in due course. But I really just want to really hammer this down. We've got to embrace the logos, the life, and the light. And I've even alliterated it for you, okay? You got it. Logos, life, and light. Now, at this point, what I want to do is just sort of round out our understanding by pulling these three terms and concepts together. Again, I find it just enormously intriguing that the Holy Spirit breathed out these three words to define Jesus. Three words that are simultaneously, get this, very concrete, and utterly mysterious. Think of that. Concrete and mysterious. Logos, life, and life. Let's just briefly consider these, what I'm going to call, concrete mysteries. By concrete, I mean it's really firm, able to be understood, right? And by mystery, I mean we don't understand all this. Concrete mysteries. And when we do so, we will understand, I think, a biblical view of the origins of all things. So first, let's go back to the Logos. The Logos spoke and all things came to be. Our universe is full of the speech of God. It is full of noise, singing, speaking, 
friction, vibration, even cosmic background radiation. Just be still and hear the warbling of the birds in song. The guttural music of great blue whales just reverberating through the waves. Polar ice caps calving off into frigid seas. The wind whistling through Saharan dunes. The continents grinding out mountain ranges. Our world is full of energy translated into speech, into noise all around us. Astrophysicist Stephen Hawking's string theory reduces subatomic particles to tiny vibrating strings of energy. I don't know if he's correct or not, but I wonder, could we be hearing the voice of God? In 1965, two American physicists, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, discover low levels of microwave radiation. Those are the shortest waves in the radio frequency band. Everywhere they pointed their antenna into space, they found these same waves. It's noise out there in all of space. Their discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMBR, won them the Nobel Prize. These waves, they concluded, were the leftover radiation of the Big Bang. The problem, however, is that these waves are evenly homogenized throughout all of the universe, which doesn't fit with the Big Bang model of a dynamic, expanding universe. About a decade ago, I attended a lecture on Clemson's campus with creation astrophysicist Jason Lyle. Some of you may know him. He gave a very good presentation, and there was some real hostility toward him in that presentation. And afterwards, we were walking out to our car, and some students followed him out, and they started shouting at him very, very loudly, CMBR is God. CMBR is God. Cosmic microwave background radiation is God. As if to say, we don't need a creator because we hear this noise out there in the universe. Well, I have long puzzled over those students. And I've wondered whether there is more truth to their statement than they realize. Now, of course, CMBR is not God. Not what I'm saying. But I have long wondered whether we are hearing the logos of God, the word of God, and this noise that is reverberating through all the universe. Remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It sounds to me like the heavens are echoing the logos of God. Now, you will, of course, have to check my physics with Rick Maddish. I'm not making eye contact with him this morning because I'm afraid I might have it wrong. All right? I'm not a physicist, but I've wondered that for a long time. Isn't it just wonderful, though, to consider the concrete mystery of the logos behind all the universe? 
to interpret all of nature as the speech of God. The second term is a term life. The Logos is the source of all life. And as I mentioned, I think it was three weeks ago now, can we embrace the concrete and utterly mysterious character of all life? The earth is dynamic rather than static. Soil is alive with microorganisms and bacteria. How does a tiny little seed fall into the earth and produce a great tree? How does that happen? We call it photosynthesis. The process by which plants and organisms absorb sunlight to synthesize foods from carbon dioxide and water. But describing a process and assigning a very scientific sounding term to it is not the same thing as answering the question, why? Why does photosynthesis transform an acorn into an oak? Think about that. A little tiny acorn. What sort of mysterious, transforming, colossal, numinous power animates all of nature out there? Engineers can explain the wiring and the circuitry of a robot. We all know you need an external energy source to plug it into to make it come alive. A computer expert can explain the inner workings of your computer. But we all know it's simply not going to work until you plug it into the wall. What fires the whole thing up? We need a source of life. So who plugged in the acorn and sent its roots just tunneling down to the earth and its branches sprawling into the sky? How is that happening? Science can explain how photosynthesis works, but what is the life source that just plugs in the whole planet? What is it that's powering those endless forests and those prairie grasses and those seaweed jungles that just spread out over the surface of our whole earth? Science has become extraordinarily good at description but solving the mystery of life is another matter altogether. It really is true. Ask the scientists in the room. They'll tell you this. Ask Ted. Consider human life. My wife and I saw the same OBGYN for our two biological children. And we were very, very grateful to be in the hands of a very competent doctor. We knew if there was a problem that she was going to take good care of us. However, it occurred to me one day after an ultrasound that our doctor was very good at describing the development of life from an embryo to a fully developed fetus. And she had very sophisticated instruments like ultrasound machines to facilitate her description. But she could no more explain the mystery of life with all of her expertise than we could. She didn't know what it was. Why, friends, does a single little cell divide and multiply by the millions and trillions? What's making that happen? Why do some embryonic stem cells spontaneously transform into brain cells 
facilitating consciousness, while others form blood vessels and others firm up into my bones. How do some selves give me the capacity to smell and others transform into eyesight and still others allow me to detect vibrations just beating against my eardrum? Do you understand that? Who commanded all those stem cells to just multiply by the trillions into a vast array of bodily functions? It's truly amazing. And why does a little heart start beating in the womb? Who flipped the switch to start that little motor that's going to go on beating for another 70, 80 years? How'd that happen? Is there a life source that your beating heart or your conscious mind just plugs into? Paul told the Athenians, listen to this, in Him we live and move and have our being. In Him, God is the life source that we were all plugged into. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. Now friends, surely there is mystery in all of this. There is nothing more concrete and utterly mysterious than life itself. You know what it is, and you cannot even define it. It's a concrete mystery. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 139 and verse 14. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, here's why, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You did this. It's wonderful. I do not even comprehend it. So friends, do not buy into the lie that modern science has replaced ancient biblical superstition. Modern science has actually reinforced the truth that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We have more proof of that verse now than at any other time in all of human history. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Michael Denton wrote of the cell at a time when he was actually an agnostic. I don't know his status now. Here's what he says about a single cell in your body. To grasp the reality of life as it has been revealed by molecular biology, we must magnify a cell a thousand million times. Magnify the cell a thousand million times until it is 20 kilometers in diameter, large enough to cover a great city like London or New York. What we would then see would be an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings, like portholes of a vast spaceship, opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. If we were to enter one of those openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. And you have more than 100 million cells in your eye. And if you want to go even deeper yet, 
go into the nucleus and discover the wonderfully complex world of DNA. It gets even more complex down there. Friends, in him was life. And now let's consider finally the concrete mystery of light. We all know what light is, even though it's difficult to define precisely. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? A wave-particle duality. Is it material or immaterial? Light surrounds us. It warms our bodies. It illuminates the heavens. But there is indeed a mysterious quality to light. Is it a massless particle? A wavelength? I was talking with a physicist recently, and he said, well, light can impart momentum without mass. This is what makes it so weird. Encyclopedia Britannica says of light, no single answer to the question, what is light, satisfies the many contexts in which light is experienced, explored, and even exploited. The physicist is interested in the physical properties of light. The artist in an aesthetic appreciation of the visible world. Light is a primary tool for perceiving the world and communicating within it. Light from the sun warms the earth, drives global weather patterns, and initiates the life-sustaining process of photosynthesis. Indeed, light provides a window on the universe from cosmological to atomic scales. Almost all, get this, almost all the information about the rest of the universe reaches earth in the form of light or electromagnetic radiation. Friends, it really is safe to say that without light, there would be no science. We would not know the world around us, and yet life itself remains mysterious. You will remember, I think, August 21st, 2017. Millions of people poured into a 70-mile swath of our country, stretching from the Oregon coast all the way down to the coast of South Carolina. The umbra of a total solar eclipse passed right over our church. Remember that? Beautiful, wonderful. We and millions of others just lifted up our gaze to the sky and observed one of nature's most magnificent spectacles. The Earth's only natural satellite, the moon, with a surface area of 14.6 million square miles, traveling at a speed of 2,200 miles per hour, momentarily just hollowed out the sun. Daylight turned to twilight. The atmosphere cooled abruptly. And the sun's corona, burning at several million degrees, just shimmered around the edges of the moon like a diamond-studded crown. With a circumference of 2,713,406 miles, the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. And it's also 400 times further away. Get that, 400 times larger, 400 times further away. This makes total solar eclipses possible. Well, is that some sort of cosmic coincidence? The Earth is the only planet that we know of from which total eclipses are visible. Did you know this? We don't know of any other planets like this. 
And it's the only planet we know of that has intelligent observers who care to witness an eclipse. Isn't that interesting? This so-called cosmic coincidence has really puzzled scientists. One writes, if there are intelligent beings in other solar systems, the odds must be quite low that they would enjoy the same circumstances we here on Earth. So we are the beneficiaries of a wonderful cosmic coincidence. But are total eclipses cosmic coincidences? In their book, The Privileged Planet, which is also a film now that we've showed here at the church, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards advanced the compelling thesis that planet Earth is both ideally situated in the universe to sustain life and also ideally situated to facilitate discovery. We are in the right place to do science. Moreover, they say, habitability, the fact that we can live here, and observability or discoverability are mutually dependent on many of the same factors. The authors state that the phenomenon that led to this thesis was a total solar eclipse. They write, besides inspiring awe and allowing us to discover the nature of the sun's atmosphere, perfect solar eclipses became the occasion for discovering the correlation between habitability, where we can live, and observability, or discovering the universe. Total solar eclipses led to a revolution and how scientists understand light, and indeed to understand light, is to understand the universe. So think of it, friends. Everything that we know about the distant stars out there and distant planets is transmitted by light. Without light, we would know virtually nothing at all about our universe. Light carries the images of billions of swirling galaxies right into the lenses of your telescope. Psalm 19 got it right. There's all this speech out there, but how do you see it? Through light. And as it turns out, our planet is ideally situated to observe the universe. According to the authors of The Privileged Planet, we are located out in the spiral arm of our galaxy. And out there in the spiral arm, there is relatively low star density, which means the night is pretty clear. If we live in the dusty center of our galaxy, we wouldn't even know there are other galaxies out there. It's very dusty in the middle. You'd never know there's other galaxies. We also live in a flattened galaxy. It looks like a frisbee, which means that you can peer perpendicularly into space and you can see other galaxies without looking into the Frisbee. Friends, is this some sort of divine conspiracy? Or is this just cosmic coincidence? Does the source, get this, does the source of all light intend that we use light to discover our place in this vast universe of ours. Does the light of the world just beckon us to look out into the universe 
and to discover His glory, to see His handiwork in the heavens above? The answer is yes. Dogmatically, yes. Psalm 19. Day to day just pours out speech. And night to night just reveals knowledge. We have very, very powerful tools today to look out into the universe and to discover God through the tool of light shining into our dark world. Friends, we use light to understand everything from photosynthesis and microscopic cells to the most distant galaxies we can possibly look at. It's all a matter of light. Without light, there would be no science. And yet, again, we don't know precisely what light is. It's a concrete mystery. And so I find it just marvelous that Jesus is called the light of the world. I mean, it's amazing. It's a concrete mystery. It makes sense of everything, and yet we will never comprehend him exhaustively. And who would want to? Now, friends, when you explore the universe all around us, doesn't it really just bring immense satisfaction to discover that it reflects the character of the Creator? Creation is full of logos, full of life, and full of life. Concrete mysteries. And God Himself dare I say, is a concrete mystery. God is simultaneously the firmest and most mysterious part of reality. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because of it I see everything else. You embrace God and everything becomes clear. Likewise, the incarnation is a concrete mystery. I don't understand it, do you? Nothing could be simpler and more complex than the humanity of God. The incarnation inspires both the faith of a child and the lifelong intellectual inquiry of the scholar. I know I've taken a lot of time with the introduction here and I've gone into science quite a bit. I don't plan to do that as we make our way forward. But I just really want us to have a real profound appreciation for what John is accomplishing in the opening paragraph of his gospel. And certainly there are things here that were breathed out by the Spirit that John himself didn't fully comprehend. And we understand it in a much better way now because of modern science. But friends, John does not take us back to Abraham. And that's where Abraham, that's where Matthew rather began. John does not take us back to Adam. That's where Luke's genealogy takes us. John carries us all the way back to the moment of creation and into the mysterious beyond. Discovering God, the Logos, the light, the life is a finite voyage into an infinite sea out there. However much you enlarge the circumference of your knowledge, you equally expand the boundaries of your ignorance. The more you understand the Logos singing through the spheres, 
the light animating the, the life animating our planet the light burning through space the more we expand the mystery of all existence in him we live and move and have our being the more we discover the infinite character of god I am convinced that God constructed reality in such a way that we can never understand it exhaustively, but we can delight in it eternally. Think of that. We will never understand reality exhaustively, but we will delight in it eternally. And why should it be otherwise? Christianity has always said, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, we know truth truly, without knowing it exhaustively. Do you understand, friends, the mystery of the hypostatic union that John is developing in his prologue? The divine and the human natures of Christ. Do you understand the intersection between the spirit and the human and the composition of Scripture? Anyone just really understand that? You've got it? How about this? Do you understand the tension between the oneness and the plurality of God? Do you understand the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Who's got that one all figured out? Do you understand or comprehend your own humanity, body and soul? The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God's answer to Job when he had very searching questions concerning the whole nature of the world. Here's his answer. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. G.K. Chesterton put it very well in his introduction to the book of Job. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. The atheist accepts no mystery and he can make sense of nothing. The Christian embraces a little bit of mystery and begins to make sense of everything. Atheism is a supremely boring worldview. Atheism reduces the world to nothing and has nothing left to talk about. Christians take the world back to the Lagos to the light, and to the life. And we have an eternal justification for theology and for science. In his work, Orthodoxy, Cheshton explores the ultimate inscrutability of the world God made. We're never going to understand it all. He says, poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad, but creative artists very seldom. Sorry, Ben Case. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and make it finite. We're never going to understand all that reality out there. Why would we want to? We are enlarging into God, the infinite God in whom we live and move and have our being. This is the problem with the naturalist worldview. He accepts no mystery, none whatsoever, and he reduces the world to absurdity. Christianity embraces mystery and we go out and we begin to comprehend reality. Science only works if you embrace mystery. Define life and you will no longer understand it. 
And theology only works if you embrace mystery. That is how God constructed reality. Mystery solves our scientific problems. Light and life are full of mystery. And without them, we would understand nothing. And theologically speaking, there are mysteries throughout Scripture. Think of it. The crucifixion of Jesus was indeed the most diabolical, wicked, criminal, evil, nefarious, demonic act of pure evil in all of human history. Nothing comes close to the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, wouldn't you say it's the most lovely, pure, altruistic, beautiful, and reverent act of goodness in all of human history? How do you explain that? Peter put it simply, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God understood this. God designed it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, there's divine sovereignty and human responsibility in one breath. If you can embrace the mystery of the intersection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility on a cross in Jerusalem, then you can, in fact, cope with the most challenging circumstances that you will ever come to in life. Knowledge is just bounded by mystery in every direction you turn. But surely John's prologue has prepared us to embrace the mystery that just sheds light and meaning and understanding on all of creation. Jesus is the Logos, the life, and the light. Shall we pray? Father, we are so thankful that Your ways are not our ways. Your mind cannot be reduced to our mind. Your truth is beyond us, and yet it's available to us. Inscrutable, yet understandable through the mind of a child. And I pray, Lord, that we would be in greater and greater awe of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the life, and the light as we continue to make progress in the Gospel of John. And we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.